My message this morning is follow the cloud. My text is uh, Psalms 26. It's the Psalm of David. And Psalms 26 and verse 8 says, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. My wife and I, we've been married for 37 years. And those 37 years, we've moved a total of nine different times. Each time we move, as we are unpacking our stuff, I'm always kind of hopeful and saying to myself, I sure hope that this is the last time we're ever going to move because relocation is just no fun. And then not too long later, we're packing our bags again, our boxes again, because we're on the move again. And I think this continual dislocation is part of my lot in life. And I think it's all designed to teach me that that the only thing that's constant in life is change. Having said that, I do think that there is a real danger in settling down. I've seen what it does to people. In the natural, they settle in a nice comfy home, take a little break, and before they know it, they're all wallowing in their comfort and convenience and security. And they lose all sense of adventure. And pretty soon they fall into some kind of atrophy and camp around the same old mountain and there's no more progress in life. And that really scares me, my friends. That really scares me. Our journey in the Bible is often described as a pilgrimage, simply meaning this earth is not the final destination. Hey guys, we're just passing through. Which is why the Apostle Paul exhorts us to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is seated. And all of that, of course, is designed to ensure that we do not get too comfortable in this life. We often tend to be fixated to things that are, can be seen. And Paul exhorts us that anything, anything that can be seen is temporal, but those things that are unseen are eternal. So we do need to have our faith anchored in the unseen. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 6, the Lord said to the children of Israel, He said, you have dwelt on long enough at this mountain. I think it was pretty cool camping at the foot of Mount Sinai in the Arabian desert. The cloud of glory, I guess, was still pretty visible. This is the very place that God first revealed His glory to the children of Israel, supernaturally provided for their needs, the manna from heaven, the quail, and of course the water from the rock. But Mount Sinai was just a stopover. It wasn't God's final destination for the people. He had a land flowing with milk and honey on the other side of the wilderness, and He didn't want to settle them to settle for anything but the best for them. And that simply meant that there are going to be times of contradiction. There are going to be times of difficulty and trials. But the main thing is to keep moving with God. And so what God is saying, I don't want you to settle down. I don't want you to be comfortable. I don't want you to stop halfway up the mountain because I've got so much more for you. And the moment we settle down on an experience, even if it's an experience with God, we start to atrophy. And I don't want to stagnate. I want to keep following the cloud of glory. Amen. And I believe that here in Cornerstone, we're close to a breakthrough. I believe we keep filling the altar and with our tears lining the the floor of the altar, with our weeping and our crying out to God, something is going to happen one day. Something. When you least expect it, I tell you this, His glory will come. Amen. Now Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And in those 40 years, they camped a total of 40 times in 40 different locations. Each location was important because God was trying to accomplish something in them. In those 40 years, they were led by one thing and one thing alone. It was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It wasn't any other cloud. It was a cloud the Bible describes in the appearance of fire. Here's how it worked. When the cloud of glory descended and rested on the tabernacle, it meant that they were to camp at that location. As long as the cloud remained, 
they were to camp and continue camping. Now, camping is as important as marching. Sometimes we're called a march, sometimes we're called a camp, and wisdom will tell us to know the difference. But when the cloud lifted up from the tabernacle, it was a signal to break camp and prepare to march. All Israel needed to do, all Israel needed to do, keep your eye on the cloud, follow the cloud. Sometimes the cloud would remain for a long time and they camped for a long time. Sometimes it would linger for a day or two, but whether it was 24 hours or for a whole year, the children of Israel did not break camp until the cloud lifted and moved on. I say all that to say that there is something in the human nature that seeks to settle down. But we are not called to be settlers. We are called to be pilgrims. And the Christian life is anything but static. You know, every symbol in the Bible of the Holy Spirit has to do with motion, has to do with fluidity. He's the wind, He's the cloud, He's the fire, He's the dove. Hallelujah. He's the power of the, of the Godhead. Hallelujah. Martin Luther once said, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you don't stop moving forward. Hallelujah. In Jeremiah chapter 48 and verse 11, Scripture tells us about a nation called Moab. It says, Moab has been at ease from his youth and he has settled down its dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remain and his scent has not changed. What happens if God allows you to settle down? You become like Moab. Your taste will remain unchanged. Your scent, your smell will be the same. And what that means is you retain your old stinky nature. And that's a dangerous place to be, the state of being unchanged. And that's why God allows contradictions. That's why He sometimes has to pour us from vessel to vessel because every time He pours us into a new vessel, every time He shakes your wall, every time He makes things difficult sometimes for you, it's so to, that we are unsettled and something happens when we are unsettled. We lose that old nature, a bit of that old nature, that old sin that we have with us. I've given this illustration a couple of times in the church, but indulge me please. In the Swiss Alps, what they have, what is called the one-day mountain climbing expedition. People pay a lot of money for these uh, expeditions. They start very early in the morning. They have their gear on and they start trekking up the mountain. It's covered with snow. After hours of walking up in the snow, they come to what we call the halfway point of the mountain. At these halfway points, there's beautiful halfway houses. And when they open the halfway house, they're greeted with this amazing fireplace. And there's a table with food and drinks. And there's a piano, someone's playing. And it's a very festive atmosphere. And when they come into the halfway house, they're all so excited. They suit out, they take off their suits. They warm themselves in the fire. And they're having a jolly good time. Their bones are aching. Their muscles are in pain. They're tired. They're freezing after four hours of climbing. And now at the halfway mark, woo, it's fantastic. While they're all enjoying it, the bell rings. And when the bell rings, it means suit up because... The climb continues. They say that in the majority of these expeditions, the most, most people, the majority of the people who signed up, paid a lot of money, decide, hey, I'm not, you're crazy. I'm not going to go out in the snow. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to enjoy the fire. I'm going to enjoy the, the buffet. I'm going to enjoy the drinks. And they, they don't want to go out in the snow, but there'll always be a few crazy people. Woo! Suiting up, out they go in the snow. A few hours later, at about four in the evening, the bell rings a second time. And when the bell rings, it's an indication that the group that went out has now reached the summit of the mountain. 
And you know, they run out to the veranda, these people, and look at their friends who continued to climb and putting the flag on top of the hill. And they say this, that the, this, this party-like festive atmosphere always gives way to a funeral-type atmosphere. And all of a sudden, these people who paid a lot of money signed up for this. They signed up to reach the top of the mountain. But somewhere they got waylaid at this halfway house and they didn't finish what they signed up for. And they got caught in this halfway house of life and they didn't finish the race. And it's like a lot of Christians, we signed up to finish this. We signed up to carry the cross. We signed up to run this race with perseverance. But somewhere in your life, somewhere in your life, you got caught by this halfway house of career. It's a halfway house of relationship. Perhaps it's a halfway house of your family and there's nothing wrong with it. But sometimes we get so caught up, we lose the fire and we forget why we're in this in the first place. I tell you that sometimes you can be in a war, in a battle so long, you forget what you're fighting for. And all these, a lot of Christians forget they signed up to scale the summit of the mountain and they get caught in these, one of these halfway houses in the altitude of comfort and convenience. I tell you this, my friends, don't settle for then the less than God's best, amen. Don't ever stop climbing. Don't ever stop pressing in. Don't ever be satisfied where you are with God because there are so many, so many halfway houses that distract us from what God has called us to do. I tell you this, too many Christians are in the permissive will of God, not in His perfect will. David was 37 years of age when he was anointed king over Israel. You remember the story of how the great prophet Samuel comes to the house of Jesse. One of your boys is going to be the king. David is anointed. He had to wait 20 years for that promise to come to pass. Didn't know that during that 20 years, he would go through the worst periods of his life. Betrayal, suffering, running away as a fugitive from a bloodthirsty king who was trying to kill him. Finally, at 37 years of age, David is anointed king over Israel, all of Israel. It was an anointing of recognition. Do you know what was David's first thing to do on his agenda? What was his first on his to-do list? He conquered a hill. He conquered a hill. And on this hill was a city called Jebus. And the Jebusites were an old Canaanite tribe. I tell you this, if God can destroy the Canaanites, He can also destroy your cellulites. <laughs> Nobody could dislodge them. Joshua couldn't get them out. The Benjamites to whom the city belonged to as, as an inheritance could not dislodge them. Saul had, didn't even try. But when David became king, the first thing he did was to take this hill. How, why? How did he know to do this? How did he understand this? Because he was a man after God's own heart. He knew what was in God's heart. And he knew that as God surveyed the entire planet, he said, this is the place on this planet that I choose for myself. And it's called, it's called Zion. And I tell you this, I love Zion. Every time you mention Zion, something shakes in my spirit because you touch something deep in my heart. Zion is the highest aspirations that God has for His people. So when David became king, uh, he took this hill. It was occupied by the Jebusites. If you've ever been to Israel, Zion is 2,500 feet above sea level. It's a natural fortress, impenetrable. If you've been to the city of David in Israel, and I've been there several times, uh, I tell you this, you'll understand why. They were so cocky. They never knew, they never believed that anybody could dislodge them from that fortress. 
When David came with his army, they looked down from where they were at David and they said to David, if you try and come here, even the blind and the lame will repel you. Woo! Very cocky. They didn't know who they were talking to. They were not talking to some junkyard dog. They were not talking to some third-rate tribal warlord. They were talking to the thrice-anointed king of Israel. And within 24 hours, David took the city. Hallelujah. He, he understood that the Ark of the Covenant needed a dwelling place and that was the only place that God would choose for His glory to dwell. That was the first thing on David's agenda. The second thing on David's to-do list was to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Zion. Now, if you recall the story last week, I preached on this on 1 Samuel chapter 3. Just kind of like picking up the story from where I left off last week. The Israelites had lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. The Philistines brought the Ark to the capital city, Ashdod. They put it in the Temple of Dagon, which is a statue of a half fish, half man, the gods of the Canaanites. The next day when they opened the door, the statue was on its face, on its floor, worshipping Jehovah, the Ark of the Covenant. They erected the statue and they closed the door a second time. The next day they opened the door. This time the arms and the head was broken from its torso. Looked like the statue was trying to run away at the threshold. They closed the door and they, they never opened the temple again. And God plagued the, the Philistines with terrible boils and sores and they realized that it was because of the Ark of the Covenant that they were inflicted and so they sent it away to another Philistine city and everywhere it went, God plagued them and finally said, we don't want this Ark anymore. We don't want the ark. So they sent it back to Israeli territory, put it on a cart driven by two milk cows that never been yoked before. And they instinctively went to Israeli territory to a place called Beth Shemesh. When the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh saw the ark, they rejoiced, but they had no fear of God. They had no fear of God. And they lifted up the mercy seat to look what was inside. And out of that plague came out a plague that killed 50,000 of them. I tell you, sometimes the only thing that protects His presence from us is that mercy seed. And we've got to respect the presence of God. He is not the man upstairs. He is not your pal. He is not, hey, my friend. You don't talk to God that way. He is the Almighty God, amen. And we have to have the fear of God back into the church. We've got to have the reverence of God back into the house of God. Somebody said, Pastor Young, I noticed, I, I love it when you always wear a jacket on the church on Sunday, uh, you know, because I think it's important to dress up in the church. I didn't dress for you, I dressed for him. Because I respect the presence of God. I don't come in my blue jeans. I don't come in my, 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 my slippers. Or We've got to respect his presence, amen? Shababa, Lord. So they send it, so the children of Israel in Beth Shemesh said, we don't want the ark. So they send it away and it ended, in house, ended up in the house of a priest called Abinadab and for 20 long years, that was where the ark of the covenant was. Ladies and gentlemen, nobody wanted the ark. You know why? It's too costly. Nobody was willing to pay the price. Cornerstone, do you want the glory in this church? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, let me just tell you something. It will cost us big time. Church is not going to be business as usual. When the glory comes, it's an upheaval, it's cataclysmic, it's disruptive. What kind of church are we building here in Cornerstone? Think about this. This is my 32nd year in full-time ministry. 26 years we've, been, we've established Cornerstone. 26 years. What kind of church? I've asked my, this is my question again and again, myself this question. What kind of church do we want here in Cornerstone? Do we want a church that attracts people? Or do we want a church that attracts the glory and the presence? Because... They're sort of mutually exclusive, at least at the beginning. 
But then when the glory comes and people realize the weight of His presence and align themselves with God, and the, the, the church will start growing after that. Amen. But if we're seeking to build a church that attracts the glory, then what is it going to look like? How are the service going to be? If Jesus is the focal point of all that we do today, then what kind of church is it going to be? Now after this, we're going to have a communion. Some of you doing communion will say, yeah, why communion? You know, it's disrupt the service. We want to just get on with the action. The, the communion service is the action. It is the action. In the early church, the, the whole worship was surrounded around the communion. The prayer was not the main, main thing. The worship was not the main thing. Jesus was the main thing in the communion. Hallelujah. And so we honour the, the finished work of Calvary. Every time we have communion, man, it's the, it's the main thing. But if we want a church that attracts people, I, I know what kind of church it's going to be like because most churches are like that. Most churches are designed to attract people, right? Don't preach the cross, don't preach suffering, don't preach repentance, don't preach the deeper life. Let's not offend anybody. Let's entertain them. Let's, uh, let's tell them how great it is to be rich and wealthy. Someone said the less of the presence we have, the more light, smokes and, mir and mirrors we need to keep to make it look like something is happening. Reinhard Bonke used to say, the less of the Holy Spirit we have, the more cake and coffee we need. <laughs> But if you want to build a church that seeks to attract the presence of God, what is it going to look like? Here's a good question. Do you think God's fussy about the place that He chooses to live in? You better believe it. Just read the book of Exodus. When He, was building the, when he wanted to build a tabernacle, He summons Moses up to the, wilderness, uh, to the mountain. And for 40 days, shows Moses the blueprint and warns him three times. He said, Moses... Be careful to build according exactly to the pattern that I show you on this mountain. Nothing was left to human ingenuity. Nothing was left to human flair or creativity. Everything was specified down to the minutest details, the colors, the measurements, uh, the materials to be used. Nothing was left to human interpretation. 16 chapters dedicated to one thing and one thing alone, the building of the tabernacle. Do you think God is fussy? You better believe it. You better believe it. If you don't build according to the pattern, it is not going to work. Moses comes down from the mountain. 12 months, he builds according, exactly according to the blueprint. Not a single ghost bomb. Under the hot desert sun, toil, work, hard work. At the end of 12 months, the tabernacle is ready. He dedicates it. And the Bible says the glory came, the fire came, and God manifested His glory, and it didn't bother Him whether it was made of badger skin. What mattered to God was if the people obeyed, He would come in His glory. And that's why I've been to churches that didn't even have a tatch, like a tatch roof with rats underneath the stage, man. I mean, just beside a sewer, sewer in, in Madagascar preaching, in a place that was so bad and the stench and the smell of human excrement coming out from the outside. And I thought the floor was a muddy floor. And I got in and I saw 200 people clothed in their best Sunday dress and singing as though they were the happiest people on the earth. And I, I tell you, when they started singing, I cried right through the time I started preaching. I thought to myself, God, how can you be in a place like this? doesn't befit your glory and your majesty. And that's exactly the point. He loves the humble. He's drawn to brokenness. He's drawn to poverty. And I watched it with my eyes. They sang like there was no tomorrow. Because for them, the glory of God was always, that was important. Amen. 
So the ark was resting in the house of a man called Abinadab for 20 long years. David longed to bring it to Zion. Abinadab had two sons, Uzar and Ohio, and those two boys grew up with the Ark of the Covenant in the house, and for them, it was just a piece of furniture. That lost their respect. They lost their reverence for the Ark. David and his mighty man came, took the Ark, put it on a cart. Guess where they got the idea from? From the Philistines, right, 20 years ago. And as they were jumping and rejoicing, 30,000 men of Israel singing and praising God, they came to a little bump on the road somewhere, on the threshing floor of Obed-Edom, and uh, the, car, the, the, the cattle, the, the oxen uh, destabilized, the ox started shaking to the left and to the right, and Uzzah thought he could just put his hands and try to stabilize the ox, and the moment he did that, a fire comes out, burns him to a barbecue crisp. And David was watching this, and the Bible says, David, oh my goodness, I'm so afraid. And I tell you, this is a good thing. We need the fear of God back in the church. Amen. We need the fear of God back in the church. I tell you this, my friends, I'm learning something about the fear of God. When God starts moving, don't you try and stabilize what God is doing. He doesn't need your help. When the Holy Spirit starts moving, we don't need to stabilize what He is doing. There's a big difference between intimacy and over-familiarity. And I think we've become over-familiar with a God we hardly know. I think this is where the body of Christ is. We're at this bump on the road. And it's as if God says, this is as far as you'll go. You will go no further. That bump is designed to stop us dead on our tracks. We will progress no further until we get the, the, the building right. And if the glory is going to come to Cornerstone, then what kind of things do we have to do to make sure He's comfortable in this place? You know, God gave clear instructions of how the ark was to be carried. So the ark was left in the house of a man called Obed-Edom. For three months, it was there. They came to David one day. They said, David, did you hear this? He went, man, this guy is Obed-Edom. God's blessing him. His carrots are papaya. His apples are bigger than everybody else. His everything that he's doing is prospering. And, and there seems to be a light in, the house, in his house that never flickers out. It's just there. It's this material glory of God over his house. And David says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew if I could get the glory of God back to Zion, all the, the radius, radiation zone of his glory will cover the entire nation of Israel. He said, how do we bring the ark back? He said, they said, we, we need to have uh, priests with the if, linen ephods. Well, get that done. They need to be carrying it on their shoulders. Prepare them. Let's do everything we can. And you find this in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. All the preparation that went into bring the Ark of the Covenant back. Finally, they come to the house of Obed-Edom after a hundred days. I can, see, I can see these four men, their knees knocking with fear and trembling because they saw and heard what happened to Uzzah. And these, they put the poles in and they lifted the Ark. One, two, three, lift. And the guy says, hey, are you all still alive? Yeah, yeah, yeah still alive. They took six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop, kill a bull, drain the blood, burn offering. Next six steps, kill another bull. Six steps, kill another bull. Six steps, kill another bull. Do you know how many bulls they had to offer that day, man? That's a lot of bull. If you had a helicopter looking down from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem, all you'll see is a, blood of, a trail of blood, smoke, and fire. Six steps, one sacrifice. Six steps, one sacrifice. And it reminds me, six days in a week you work, Sabbath you come to the house of God, 
And uh, there's always a sacrifice because if you don't make the sacrifice, you don't move the snake six steps forward. And that's why I give an altar call every week. If I'm preaching, the Lord spoke to me one time. He says, every time you preach, make sure the people are given an opportunity to respond to the word. They have to have a response. And that's why I give an altar call. Because people need to hear and then obey, amen. And if they do that, they're building their house on solid rock. Once every six paces, one sacrifice. I'll close with this story. Many years ago, we had a speaker in, in Cornerstone. His name was Tommy Tenney. And Tommy told us the story of his friend, an obese man, a pastor. When he was young, he was 100 kilograms, big man. And he had a call of God in ministry, became a pastor, never lost his weight. There was some congenital defect in his life. I think it was hormones. And he was a very large man. And um, he would go to his member's house, sit on the chair, the chair would break. He would sit on the, the couch and then he could not get out of the couch. They had to pull him literally out of the couch. And he was embarrassed one time too often, didn't want to, but he loved the people, you know. And as a pretext, he would bring his files and come, hey, pastor, come on in, so good to have you. And he would come in and peek very quickly. And what he was looking for was a piece of furniture that can carry his way. If he didn't see that, he would give some flimsy excuse that he had to go to another meeting and off he would go. But if he finds that piece of furniture, then he would, yeah, I'd love to stay, man. And I think when we say to the Lord, God, we want you to come. We want your presence to come. We want your glory to come. I think he responds to that. I really do. I think he responds to that. And I think he walks in by the side of the service and he looks very quickly around this church to see if we have built a mercy seat that can take his glory. He's, he's wanting to see if there are four men in this house that can bear the glory of God on their shoulder. And if, if he sees that, he says, I'd love to come in, hang out with you guys. But if he doesn't, he just quietly slips out and nobody knows the difference. When we talk about the glory of God, we talk about Solomon's temple. When the glory fell, oh, that's the glory. We talk about the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured. Elijah, Moses, and Peter didn't have to say to John and Andrew, hey, you guys, John and James, I'm so sorry. Hey, you guys, are you seeing what I'm seeing? They all saw the glory. The cloud, the Father's voice, they all heard the voice. When we talk about the glory, Isaiah 6 comes to mind, high and lifted up. But the town of Ramah will never come to mind when we talked about the glory. But let me just tell you about this city. Ramah was the base of operations of the great prophet Samuel started the school of prophets. The students were called the sons of the prophets, which I begin to understand something of the anointing that rested in that place. There was, it was a portal. It was an open heaven portal in Ramah. So much so that when you came into proximity of the city, you would be impacted by the very presence. One time Saul came to kill, arrest David because he was seeking refuge in, in Ramah. And just by coming into close proximity, falls by the power of God, ro ro rolls all over and starts prophesying. He was incapacitated. He was paralyzed. He could not come near the presence of God. I tell you this, the presence of God is very protective as well. And I long for the day, my friends. I long for the day when people would walk into this church and the moment they walk in, you don't have to lay hands, you don't have to touch them, they would be healed of all that sickness and diseases just by being in proximity to the glory. 
I'm praying for the day that when people walk past Katong, they will say, I don't know why, but I feel like I'm drawn into the presence of God. I tell you this, the day will come, and I, you can take this to the bank, I am 100% sure, 100% sure, that everybody who's got cancer, that when they come in, those cancer cells will shrivel up and die. At some point in the future, I believe this is going to happen in this house. I tell you this, there is going to be an open heaven over this place. Can you imagine what it was like to be in Rama? 24-7, open heaven. They were seeing visions all the time. All the time, they were seeing visions. And I tell you, the day is going to come when you walk into this house and you will start seeing things you've never seen before because there is an open heaven in this house. The gate of heaven, hallelujah. I believe with all my heart that we are going to come to that day and see. The Bible tells us that we will be with unveiled faces beholding Him. From glory to glory, we're going to be transformed. It's happening right now. I tell you this, that there is a time of preparation for us to see the greater glory. I have been involved in the glory. I've seen the glory to a certain extent. I have determined that I'm not going to be the same man as I am one year from now. I'm not the same that I was 12 months ago. And the next 12 months, if I stand here by the grace of God preaching to you, you will see a different man. Because I have determined I'm going to change and I'm not going to be the same person that I was 12 months later ago. I want to see the glory and I want to be changed from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of God. I don't want to be known as a preacher that goes down in history that God used for a short season and then set aside. No, no, sir. I want to be involved with what God is doing. I don't want to miss out on this wave of glory. And I want to move with God from glory to glory. We all need to cry out, God, we want more of you, my friends. I tell you this, let's fill the altar today with our tears. Because if we will come and lay something down to the Lord, then you, my friends, are going to take six more steps in your walk with God. Six more steps every week, six more steps every week, six more steps. And I promise you, the day will come when your feet will cross the threshold of Zion. Hallelujah. We'll come back home. Hallelujah. We will come back home. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.